I'm not so sure I believe in God. I'm a bad Jew. I have non-Jewish family members. I'm not a real Jew. I haven't observed any Jewish rituals in ages. I'm a sorry excuse for a Jew. Yet I'm proud to be a Jew, and I'm interested in exploring what that means for me in the context of my reality. If only I could have a really candid conversation with a friend, or maybe a nice rabbi, I'm sure it would be a rewarding journey. If this sounds like you, this podcast is for you. In this maiden episode, Katie and her non-Jewish husband Derek and I discuss all sorts of issues over fine or not so fine wine. We hope you'll enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed chatting. The song of our people. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, yeah. People find out about it. See, I told you the Jews wine. A million people either love you or hate you. Also, yeah. some of our people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Totally, totally. No, we're, it's okay. I know that there's a lot more people. First of all, I know, like, uh, my good friend Gary V says that the haters don't know you. Um, and that's fine. And uh, the people that know me generally... I'm on good terms with, so it's all right. Mahaim. 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 Nothing like cheap rosé. So we're trying to get pregnant, and this is relevant because every time I know I'm not pregnant, I'm like, well, I can drink that week. Except I'm like, well, we have really expensive wine. So like, let's go through the good one. We never drink the fancy wine, but I'm like, I can drink this week. All of the fancy wine. <laughs> I'm just like delightful. It's are you story. both um, are you both winophiles? Are both what? Winophiles, isn't that the word? Mm-hmm. I think that's the word. Minophiles. I'm gonna Google that quickly. Yeah. Winophiles, like O E N. I think that's the word for wine lovers. Better be. Oh, thank God. Connoisseur of wine. Yes. Um, are you both connoisseurs of wine? Well, I am. Uh huh. I'll drink wine, and I know that my wine has gotten better since Katie picks it. <laughs> All right. Not my proudest moment, but I have had wine that cost $6 and was in a plastic bottle. I don't recommend it. Well, I just read a story. There's a restaurant in New York. Did you see this? There's a restaurant in New York where some people came and ordered $2,000 bottle of wine and they got the $18 bottle and the other couple who ordered the $18 bottle got the $2,000 bottle and they were both very happy and everybody thought they had a great time. So, Well, did you hear? It was like the Bay Street Bank, not Bay Street, the the bankers and they were like, oh yeah, this is a a $2,000 bottle for sure. Oh, I taste the tannins and oh, so fancy. And the guy was just like, I almost didn't tell them but then I thought I was a liar. And they were just like, oh yeah, I could tell. And it's like, you can tell when you were told. Yeah, exactly. So I think for, for most of us, we just don't know the difference. I certainly can't tell the difference between any decent wine or the other. If it's really bad, so it's obviously very bad. Um, like even with, hard, even with hard stuff, I once had, um, when I was studying in Israel, um, I had really, really, really bad vodka. Israel. Like the only time in my life that I could tell, like, you know, there's good vodka. They're all bad, right? This was bad. This was like stuff you could put in a Jeep. And I'm going to you know, advise you. Other than that, it's all the same. 
and have the conversation with vodka about her. It is one of the few things that she is just one of the few things, one of the things that she is very intense about. She's just like, you know what's important? Vodka, good vodka. And then you get a lecture on vodka, and I'm like, We keep saying that, that we're slowly introducing Derek to like, like the way of the Jewish people and like the culture as a whole. And we keep joking that every holiday passes. And if there's one thing our people do as a rule, it's you have wine with your celebratory meals, right? Like this is. Yeah, for sure. I don't want to say it's a tenant, but it's like a tenant of our faith. You know, you have the wine. Mom and I can't bring ourselves to buy Manischewitz wine, but we both think Good. that Derek Right, but we both think that Derek needs to try it. So we're at this like tension point where like neither of us wants to pay for it, but we also, but we want him to try it because we're like, you should know what it is because like it is such a core, what Jewish child didn't get drunk off Manischewitz wine at like 13. It's terrible. It's awful. It's terrible. It's terrible. Whoever introduced the notion of sweet syrupy wine to Jewish culture should be hung. It's so <laughs> well, and we keep trying to explain it to him. We're like, it's awful, but it's so bad. You want to know something? I was in LCBO once, and every time I every time I would walk in, this is at the uh, the one on King Street, um, King and William. Yeah. Every time I would walk in, there was a guy there who one of the workers. He recognized me and come over. Oh, Rabbi, look, we got this new kosher wine. You'll love it. And he was all over it. And I was talking to him once, and I said, you know, you guys always have. Manischewitz in stock. You know, this wine comes and goes, that wine comes and goes, it's always Manischewitz. Why? So he said to me, the line of the year, he said, the old ladies love it. <laughs> All right. It's, it's, <laughs> it's it. like a half step up from wild vines. Like, have you ever had, well, I don't think it's kosher, but it's this, it's basically like, it comes, what I can explain wild vines to you is one of the wine flavors, flavors is blue. Blue? Blue. So like one of the flavors you can buy wild vines in is, is blue, right? So it's, it, there's like rosé and red and white and green apple, it's green, and blue, right? And, but it's wine. <laughs> and like, I feel like that's on par with that is it's just like drunk teenagers yeah. want blue wine and like little old ladies are like, I want the sweet wine. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, it's okay. You really don't have to have it and uh, you're probably better off if you don't. No, he's got to have it. I don't want to drink it, but he's got to taste it. Hey, if we're opening a bottle, it's getting drunk. <laughs> Just like Derek passed out on the floor. The uh, worst thing ever. Oh, you think I'm the only one partaking? No. No, the season of giving. I must That's share. That's a Christian thing. I, don't do <laughs> I can't give you it. No. Can I put Just it? don't accept those type of gifts. I've made that rule. You know, she has the upper hand. She could just declare a rule to be, it is so. Like, Rabbi, you can wrap me out, but like, you won't with this, so it's fine. Unfair. <laughs> unfair. Why? Because if you disagree with me, it means that you condone drinking Manischewitz. What? I win at all hands here. <laughs> well, no, the most Jewish thing for me to do would be to disagree with you. <laughs> Song of our people. Is, no. What's that saying? Is it's like you have like three Jews in a room and 27 opinions? That's disagreeing right. with ourselves that's just right. that's right that's right we try and explain it to Derek because mom and I will just start having like what we call a friendly conversation which Derek sometimes is like are you are you in a fight and we're like no we're just talking this is how you talk and he's right. like but I can't figure out what either one of you was arguing for and mom's like well we're just bored so we just started to argue 
And he's like, but what, what are you arguing? And mom and I are like. Yeah. No, it's definitely, look, it happens a lot. I think sometimes it's caricatured, but it, it happens a lot. And there's a certain tolerance to, um, you know, there's a certain tolerance level that you might not have in other cultures of uh, argumentativeness. That's the word. But I think and it is because you want to be smart. Like, that's the thing is that like the smartest thing you can do is argue an argument, even if it's not your argument. Yeah, I mean, you have to listen also. And I encounter students who are really enamored with the art of always pushing back on whatever you say. And it, it, it's a, it becomes a boring act when it's overdone. Different. But that's different. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not arguing. Yeah. Like, and again, I was being sarcastic. It's not arguing just to argue. Like, I don't find that's, that's not a strong argument when you're arguing just to right. be difficult. That's not an educated argument, right? Like if exactly. you're arguing just to prove that you can be contrary, like it's boring, no one cares. If you're arguing exactly. that you're thinking about all of the different opinions, and I think the art of it really is when you're actually not sure on your opinion, right? So you're arguing yeah. multiple perspectives, which helps you like solidify where your stance is when you're not yeah. fully. Right, no, that's a good faith argument. That's good faith arguing. That's good faith debating, for sure. Yeah, I think it's you start with a topic and you sort of explore it, and if you come up with contrary opinions, you never know. Do you win many arguments with me? Yeah. No, I never win any arguments. I just get bored. I just we 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 kind of get to a point, and I'm just defeated. I just get bored, so you I don't get bored. You lose. You get tired of the confrontation. I get I get tired of uh, not knowing what I'm talking about. <laughs> I get tired of digging the hole, essentially. So I just decide to lay down in it when it's about six feet deep. <laughs> right. It's interesting. No, I hear you. I hear you. Like, what is a good argument? There, there's a fine line there for sure. Yeah. But it's a hard thing to do. Like I do it with my students, right? It's like it's very similar to like how do you learn? Well, it's not only that, but it's accepting other people's contrary opinions and listening to them. I think, you know, especially in my line of work, being able to present, we'll say, a critical appraisal of something and be able to accept a critical appraisal critique, critique is um, is important because. The person isn't necessarily wrong or right, but you have to be able to look to take what they're saying, judge it, and interpret the information. Whether they're presenting it right or wrong, they might be presenting the right point, but delivering it, delivering the message incorrectly. But you have to sometimes be able to see beyond the message and understand that mm -hmm. the point is there. But I think it goes deeper. See, see what, how they mean it. Yeah. yeah, but I think that the other side, well, not goes deeper though. I think it, like, I don't know, Rabbi, you and I have had this conversation about how so many times you can't have a difference of opinion without it being an attack on someone's personhood. And that's, mm -hmm. that's where it's hard. It's hard that when you navigate those points of, of tension over opinion and you can't disagree with somebody without them attacking who you are when that's not what the intention is, right? It doesn't need to turn into... No. No, it's uh, the, the, look, that, that's a whole nother topic. But, you know, just on this point, yeah, yeah, no, just on this point, I think it's also important, you know, for the, the health of a conversation and the health, the health of a debate 
it's also important to know when to say, hey, I don't know. Exactly. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I just read a line, I think it was from Dave Chappelle, actually, of all people. And he said, well, you got to give, you got to leave some room for redemption. The more room you leave for redemption, the more room you leave for people to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important. That's a really good point. I think it's very important in communication and conversation and society. Um, we can't be too into gotcha mode. If we're, if we're very gotcha, then we're, we're incentivizing everybody around us to be defensive and, and hedge and, you know, protective. And it doesn't bode well for a healthy conversation where people are vulnerable and honest and open. We actually control that if, if we're in gotcha mode or not. Do you think that's a point of vulnerability? Because like, I think that one of the hardest things to say is I don't know. Like I say that to my students all the time. They're asking me and I'm like, I, think I don't know. No, I, I think it's great. I, I say I don't know all the time. It's such a relief. You know how liberating it is to say I don't know? It's not it's my a area. Pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure. You know, I remember my dad, my dad um, had a uh, consulting company at one point in his career. And um, he was being interviewed uh, some some like entrepreneur entrepreneurship uh, not really an incubator but just sort of a nonprofit in the community in Brooklyn helping young guys get started so they interviewed people who are like a generation older who had gone through the ups and downs of a career and one of the things he told them in that interview was the reason we succeeded whatever success we had was because we became really, really, really good at only one tiny little thing. We actually became the best in the world at this one tiny little thing. It's such a sub, 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 sub specialty. Um, and, and the irony is that to succeed, you have to, all you have to do is that, and then you get to say, I don't know, to everything else. Right? I don't know. I don't know. It's not my specialty. Well, what is your specialty? My specialty is yes. female African beetles. Oh, well, you become the world's expert on that. You could say, I don't know about everything else and still be successful. But that's the, that's the trap, right? Because like, I feel like that with a PhD, like every single person I know who has a doctorate, not everyone, the good ones who have a doctorate, everyone's like, well, you have a doctorate, you're smart. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I know this one tiny little slice of a thing. And I know this right. tiny little slice incredibly. And I was saying to someone that it actually drives Derek nuts, right? Because it's not that I refuse to have an opinion about something I don't know, but if I don't feel confident in what my opinion is, I don't know, right? Like, I don't want to speak to that. I don't know. Yes. It's not my area. 100%. Like, you want to talk to me about health decision-making and electronic health records? I'm your girl. You know, like, I got right. you. You want to talk Good. to me about, like, the economics of, like, po- like political reform? Like, nope. I, I don't know. <laughs> right? Like, unless it is his tiny little slice. And even within that slice, like, let me list off the people who know more than I do. That doesn't take away from right. the fact that I have a doctorate in it. That doesn't take away from the fact that other people think I'm an expert. Like, that doesn't take away from right. my perceived intelligence. Like, I'm incredibly confident exactly. in that I'm smart. Right. But part Part of that is I know all of these people who are smarter than me and I don't like to be the smartest person in the room, right? Like I hate that. I don't want to walk in a room and feel like I'm smarter than everyone. Who wants that? Like who doesn't want to learn from other smarter people? This is what I've based my life on. This is why I like learning. But I think that's a confidence thing. It's that Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The more you know, right? Mm -hmm. The more you know what you don't know. And the less you know, the more you think you know. Like you did a Google search and you're Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the ultimate expert in like, to get like topical wearing a mask in public right 
Yeah, you know, and I sit there and I'm like, okay, you know who doesn't know about the reality of wearing a mask? Me. I do not know about that area of science. I have a PhD in pharmacy and I don't know about that area of science. You know who it does know? All of these medical professionals who are experts in this. So I will listen to them. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. For sure. I, I tell students all the time, this comes up, this comes up with religion too. You know, um, when I have to hash it out with someone, I, I, I rarely, rarely have I ever gone head to head, you know, proving some point of, of religious dogma or, or, or Jewish belief. It's usually, let's take a step back. Um, if, you, if a person says to me, Rabbi, I don't know how anybody can believe in God, right? It's an impossible idea. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not going to start throwing proofs at you, yada, yada, yada. Take a step back. Explain to me, how do we know what we know? Let's do some epistemology 101. Talk to me about, you know, what, what are the things that you already do believe and do accept on faith and trust to some degree. Let's explore that. Let's not, you know, give in to the fallacy that we only, we only accept as true that which we have seen with our own eyes. Um, everybody has beliefs, you know. You don't believe in God, but you believe in something else. So let's not make it so black and white. Um, and then it turns out that it's not that it's an easier sell, but it's, we're all sort of on the same page. We're all at different points on the same spectrum as opposed to being at loggerheads, totally in conflict and clashing. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of room for a lot of humility in, in knowledge. And as long as that's there, you can have a great debate and a great argument. That's, but that's the point, right? Like how many times have, have I made the joke to you about what a bad Jew I am, right? And it, but it's the same thing. Is Way it, too many. It's true though. It's true though. No, but it's, but it's an interesting point. Because what are your what, metrics? How are you measuring it? Do you even want to be a, a bad Jew? You know, some people enjoy being bad. If you want to be bad, I'm not going to even be able to, to convince you out of it. But I think that's the irony, right? Like the irony is when I say that, I think if you hold the tenets that like I was raised with, which were mostly cultural, is like the tenets are mm. like, educate yourself, like get an education, learn, question, grow, right? Mm -hmm. This is like the song, this is again, like the, the song of our people is to learn. The song of our people is to like debate. The song of our people is to yep. be like humble. The song of our people is to like have faith and honor and trust in your family and you know, your people, like all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the downside of that that I've always found really interesting is when you ask me, like the deepest thing that I land at is belief in God, right? And for me, it's such a complex question because I will tell you that every time I've been at my most terrified, right, when my parents were going through the cancer and everything, I've absolutely prayed. But other than that, I question because I don't like being told this is what you believe mm -hmm. because you should believe it. And right. I think it's such an interesting point of tension because like for me, I say mm -hmm. I'm an agnostic because I don't not believe in God, right? Like I do believe yeah. that there is something in the universe, but I don't know what that is. And as a scientist, I have trouble putting names on things, but what I will, but what I will tell you that it goes deeper than that is it's an interesting thing to navigate because like, I don't not believe in God, right? I don't not believe in miracles. I don't not believe in all of this stuff, but when I'm told it's either yes or no, that pushes me mm -hmm. away. That black or white approach makes me feel like, okay, if it's black or white, then I can't be part of it. If it's gray, right. I'm absolutely here for it. But where is mm -hmm. that point of tension, right? Like I said, like I was sure. always told, well, you're not Jewish enough. But what is Jewish enough? It's no, it's absolutely true. My whole life they've been like, well, your dad's not Christian, so you're not Jewish enough. 
you didn't grow up all the time in Toronto or a big city, so you're not Jewish enough. I mean, your dad's not Jewish. You're not Jewish enough. Right? Which is not the tenets of the Jewish faith. It's matrilineal, right? But the flip side of that is like, I've been told the parallel side of it is like, well, like I've had swastikas painted on my locker. I've been told all of the negative stuff around being a Jew, right? And so it's this really weird point of tension that in the faith, I'm not religious enough. Out Out of the faith, like you're not one of us. So where do you land? It's shades of gray. Right? right and like how do you have confidence? No, and then again for Derek like that's what I was saying the other night yeah. what, what? But, <laughs> but that's the interesting thing right when he was like so do Jews believe in hell and I'm like that's a good question oh, yeah. <laughs> right? like I don't I don't know right like how I can google it but that doesn't seem like the best approach to learn this we could ask the I could ask you yeah. <laughs> I'm the expert in hell apparently I was gonna say <laughs> and your answer is it's complicated so that's not that helpful <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, first of all, any Jew who says Jews don't believe in hell is clearly not married. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That was obligatory, stereotypical marriage joke. Um, so look, there's, there's, there's two different questions, right? There's a question, what do Jews believe? And there's a question, what, is, what does Judaism teach? Um, those, are, those are often two different points. Um, How many books are there that are the dialogue on the Torah? There's like the Mishnah, the Midrash. The Talmud. How much? Sure. Like, there's all of these books that are us arguing our sacred no, no. texts. Let's name them. Let's see what you got. There's the Mishnah, there's the Talmud, there's the Minash. Midrash. That's it. Midrash, yeah. And there's another one, at least. But, like, the major ones, right? And you have, then you have codes of law. All that is then broken down into legal codes, because that's all the discussion. Mishnah and the Talmud has you know, legal decisions tucked away every 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 lines. And between those one or two line decisions, there's a whole lot of discussion. And then you have, you know, the Middle Ages, after the close of the Talmud, you have people that, scholars that went through the Talmud and basically extracted all the, bo- the bottom line of all the discussion and organized it. And then someone else came in and organized it a little bit differently. And <laughs> Anyhow, but on the hell question, I was going to say, this is your um, version of electronic health records. Like, I've got nothing on this. There's, there's the Torah, and then there's other books. So, so yeah, I mean, you, have a, you don't have really any mention of, of afterlife or anything like that at all in the five books of Moses. Um, you really don't have any, any, it's not addressed at all. Um, and I remember hearing a few reasons why, which escaped me at the moment. Um, you do have a couple of mentions in later rabbinic literature, um, the Talmud, the Midrash a little bit, um, and then a lot in, or a lot more, I should say, in Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. Makes sense. Um, and what it boils down to is basically, it starts off, before you get into the afterlife, the question is, well, what about life? or before life, um, because after life is only a later stage in the process. Well, what's so, that? There's a word for that. It's not tikkun olam, which is like save the world or whatever, but there's a word for like what, haba? Like, what? What? What are you referring to? The, the word there's, for what? So like there, there's a word for like, like the what is life, right? Because like, like when you look at like those, those kind of very, like those things we learn in like Hebrew school, right? Like one of them was like, mm-hmm. What it, what is like and like one of them is like oh like tikkun olam heal the world like there's those like tenants almost mm-hmm. right okay um, but there's like a phrase well, I, for, like, I would, 
Right. No, I just meant it in the sense of, you know, you're talking about the afterlife experience of a soul getting the consequences of its life uh, lived on earth. My, my, my point is just, you know, you have to have a definition of what that life is, who is living that life. And it's very simple. We believe that there's a soul and a body, which when thrown together and held together miraculously constitute a human being. Um, and so you and I and everybody here right now have a soul, and that soul functions through the spacesuit known as the body. Death is the separation of the soul and the body. Um, the body decomposes. The soul disappears, for all we know, right? We down here have no longer any ability to interact with the soul. This is like a nice we can circle. Only interact, we can only interact with the spacesuit. Right. But that's my point. This is a nice circle. When Jews are like, we don't know, we're like, we don't know. That that's a futurist problem. Like, we don't know. <laughs> so right. So, but for starters, what we do know, and we do believe, is that a human life is a composite of a body and a soul. Mm-hmm. And and the soul is basically the energy of the body, uh, the life force within the body, um, the intelligence within the brain. There's the mind and there's the brain, and there's we're, we're, we don't believe that we're only um, you know, neurons and chemicals firing, and that's all there is to a human being. We believe there's something more than that. Um, and the second law of thermodynamics will tell you that the soul cannot die, right? Soul doesn't cease to exist. Which is so held across is like many different philosophies of like the afterlife. Yeah. Right, like the yeah, afterlife, yeah, yeah, yeah. the argument over what comes after death. There, I right. think one of them is like the monadology I am not, again, speaking of not an expert, I am not an expert in the different philosophies, but I do know that like I from the second year, the second year, like philosophy, we were just teaching Derek the other day about Socrates, <laughs> very badly. But you know, what, thinking back to my second year class. Derek, what, you're a great sport. I must say, Derek, you're a great sport. I never studied any of this. I have, Derek's like, I'm an I engineer. have no idea, Plato, Aristotle. I, but you know the second law of thermodynamics? Yeah, science. <laughs> but like my point is that like like there's across the various schools of thought, like the idea that the soul is an energy unto itself that when separated yeah. from the body is I'm gonna say transcended energy. That is the system amongst Nothing. many different spiritualities, yeah. not unique. Yeah. Like debating philosophy yeah. was just never in my was just never a thing I was raised. We just we just kind of worked and did work. And, and if we were done that work, we did more work. Like there was never that sort of but that's a pause, for, pause for the intellectual. But that's that fascinating mm-hmm. difference because like your parents were Catholic, right? I don't, we don't yeah. know. Yeah, Catholic. Yeah, I was baptized. So you, who knew? But my point is that like, that's a very like, that's a very different perspective because my read on Christianity is that a lot of it was meant on not questioning, right? Like you baptize yourself, you're saved. At oh, some point yeah. you baptize and you're fine. Oh, what do you, what do you mean? Christianity? We, we totally question what we believe in. Right. But that's the difference, right? We are right? all about accommodating. <laughs> no, but like that's, but that's the, that's, that's what tripped me up with this question, right? Yeah. Was that like in Judaism, I was like, I actually can't, like, I remember there being something about the Messiah not coming 
And I remember that it not being as linear in like heaven and hell in that black and white way. But again, like the Christian mentality was much more clear. If you're baptized, you're saved and you go to heaven. Like it was a very, you know, if you're not baptized, you're probably right. not saved and you're going to hell. Like we don't have that same linear oh, division. We can, do what, we can do whatever. We just have to be able to but that's, repent. That's the thing. And I don't think Judaism has, or to my knowledge, we don't have the same, you just have to repent. Maybe we well, do. you do have to repent. Not a good Jew. You <laughs> do have to repent. We all have to repent. We have to. Rep the Talmud says it would be great if people would repent daily. Um, like I'm not talking the Talmud and like Yom Kippur. I'm saying that like there's no, okay. there's no like if you get there's baptized, no one, one quick fix. If you get baptized at six months, your soul is automatically saved, and as long as you say God forgive me, and when you die, you're fine, right? Like right. there's not no. quite that black and no. white thing. It isn't that easy. Judaism, or making simple. it difficult for Yeah, no, and that, that's, that's <laughs> where the questioner arose, because... I'm a bad Jew, and I can't We, we can't tell him what's... The rabbi watching. shuts the window, and it's like, nobody watched this. <laughs> this yeah. <laughs> dark. <laughs> nobody listened to this conversation. No, no, no. So, so here's, here's how I would summarize um, whatever it is that I know about the afterlife in, in a nutshell. Basically, the soul is a spiritual force. It comes directly from God. It is of God, so to speak. Um, I mean, everything is, but the soul more obviously so, more patently so. While you're alive as a soul in a body, you, in your conscious mind, your awareness are really not that um, talented at seeing reality from God's perspective because you've been thrown into a physical body, you're heavily distracted. Your consciousness becomes very much, um, almost magnetically pulled into the physical realm. And that kind of is all consuming. And if you have a moment of enlightenment or, or, or a moment of spiritual awareness, wow, that's great. And you always feel like you have to override your default for that. Mm -hmm. Whereas after death, in the absence of that physical tension, your soul is only and, and exclusively living a spiritual existence. Um, and by the way, that's not your geographic. Heaven is only a metaphor. Heaven's right here if you want to, right? Um, and so what happens after your life is you get a chance to be judged, to be evaluated on how you live your life. And that evaluation is basically your soul experiencing your life for the first time without the, um, the, the shade um, of the body, without the filter of the body. And so you really, really perceive and, and can consciously experience um, the, the goodness of what you did that was good and the evil of what you did that was bad. Whereas in your life right now, you might say, yeah, I mean, I gossiped about my neighbor, but like, come on, the whole world does. And anyway, he deserves it. And in the afterlife, you might say, oh, my God, what did I do? What did I do? Right? Um, and so on and so forth. And vice versa, for the good as well. But since the question is about hell, we're going that direction. Um, hell is basically the experiencing of whatever bad you did in your life, whatever poor choices self-destructive acts and so on that you made in your life. Um, 
without the filter, without the, the justifying um, self-defensive mechanisms that you have uh, as a human being. So you experience the full pain of what you did. And along, along with that comes um, intense regret. Because if you don't have that filter to cover up for yourself, you don't have the justification and the excuses, then all that's left is the acknowledgement of what you've done and, and burning regret automatically, right? If you're, if you're, going, to, if you're going to be ever, if you're ever going to be fully aware of, of how bad it is that w- what you did, the regret is right, is right there. Um, and that regret is cleansing because regret is what we do to detach ourselves from something wrong. And the more profound the regret, the more disassociated we become from that evil to the point where if, you, if you've done it properly, you can say that's no longer a part of me. It once was, but it isn't anymore. Um, that's cleansing, that's restorative, that's you know, finding our innocence again, um, and, uh, and then it's over. There's no such thing as eternal damnation. There's no need for eternal damnation. God's not out to get you. It's basically a cycle in the dishwasher, and the dishwasher is essentially regret. Um, and, and, and the corollary to that is, one second, the corollary to that is, is that you can do this while you're alive too. It doesn't have to happen after life. You can do this while you're alive. You can experience the regret to the degree that you can um, by acknowledging whatever is the truth of whatever it is that you've done, owning up fully and taking full responsibility and being totally and radically accountable for everything that you do. Um, you can experience that now. And, and to some degree preclude that, that kind of uh, awful experience later. Um, perhaps not entirely, who knows, but that's why we're encouraged to, to engage in, in, you know, fairly frequent stock taking of our lives, um, and, and make amends and repent and do teshuva and, and all that, you know, not just once a year, but, you know, fairly frequently, not all the time. You can't live like that, but anyhow. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the concept of hell in Judaism. It's, it's a cleansing process after death to disassociate the soul and cleanse the soul from whatever evil it has done. It cannot last forever. Part of the reason that we say Kaddish after somebody passes away is to sort of pray for their soul as they're going through that difficult process. And the rule is that we don't say Kaddish for more than 11 months after someone passes because the longest, the Talmud actually says that the longest the soul can be judged in hell is for 12 months. And we want to basically say, there's no way that my grandfather could be that bad. The worst it could be is needing 11 months. And so we only say Kaddish 11 months after someone passes. That's just a side, side point. But yeah, that's, that's the idea. But don't you think that's an interesting slant? Because like, one of the things, I'm going to say it again, bad Jew, but, like me. But I don't one of recognize the, thing, the term. But one, no, but one of the things that, that resonates with is that I don't remember where it is, but it's the idea that's common in like various plays and like literature that whatever your hell is what you make it right. So your hell, mm-hmm. right? Like it, like your personal opinion on what hell is, is it probably isn't you sitting there being tortured by demons, poking you in flames, getting, you know, like the Dante's Inferno vis-a-vis hell. But it's actually like, what is your worst experience, right? Because we joke about that. Like the meme culture that we exist in, it jokes about that. It jokes about like, oh God, my hell is grading student papers and they're always being 10 left. 
mm-hmm. right? Like that's what we joke about. And like, that's a version of what right. you're saying that our hell is our repentance. And in, I'm going to use this stupid example, but like, instead of being like, oh my God, my hell is grading 220 student papers forever for eternity with there always being 20 more left, right? But that's right. the forgiveness. It's about, you're allowed to own this bad experience of grading paper. It's not actually that bad. My students are legitimately good. But like, you yeah. know, this question of this, this constant thing, and then your version of heaven is when you accept the fact that like, you know what, but they're learning. And so like they're learning, I'm oversimplifying and I get to be part of the good thing. As frustrating mm-hmm. as it may be in moments, mm-hmm. it is good to learn to let go of this annoyance and instead live with the fact that you are helping someone develop whatever skills they need to be successful. Sure. And sure. terrible example, but like the point holds, right? Like hell is what you make it. And right. it's, I, I see the overlap that that Venn diagram has about a 10% overlap, but I see what you mean. It's there. If you stretch for it, if you reach for the concept, I promise it's there. No, but it's, it's I don't interesting know because I don't know what I don't know what my hell would be. But it's it would probably be trying to explain it to me. But it's it's the idea. <laughs> it's the idea that it's hard to explain because like I, I we do this with Derek, right? Like when we're trying to be like this is what being Jewish Who's is. Who's we? My mom, obviously. Who else? Oh, not like, okay. not like the royal yeah, Jewish. They, they make us sound like they sit me down like we once do. a week and say like, look. It's once a month. And we try it. No, but it comes up every holiday, right? Where he's like, I you don't know. even know, but you're on the agenda. I should stop asking questions and just enjoy the wine. Well, no, but we do. Like a holiday <laughs> comes up and he's like, so what's Yom Kippur about? And we're like. <laughs> the down, boy. <laughs> Right. And he's just like, but atoning for what? And we're like, everything. But like, it's a question, right? We're like, I don't, I don't know. You're supposed to atone for the, the year, but kind of more than the year, but not really less than the year. Cause you were supposed to atone last year. So it's, it's kind of this moving target of atonement. Right. And it, it kind of feels like the blind leading the blind. Cause he, he won't know if we lie. Like what's, what's he going to say? Like, no, that's, that's not what it is. Right. But it's, it's true. You we should do. be on. You should take. You should take the rabbi's word and just say like, I don't know. It no, but I do know. More, I know that it's the atonement. Conversation. I don't know it beyond the atonement. Like I know it's the day of atonement. I don't know beyond that. Okay. I know what I know, and I acknowledge what I don't know. Fight me. So my, <laughs> so what I'm getting from this is I should turn on the five year old and just go. But why? But why? Every time. <laughs> and then we can have more of these conversations with the rabbi. In-depth questions. But I think that's the other thing is that like nobody likes admitting they don't know. No, I'm serious because it's a, it's a huge thing. I don't know. I, don't, I, 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 would, I would quibble with you on that. I mean, um, I for one love doing it, love saying I don't know. I do it all the time. It gets me out of trouble. What do you mean? Why wouldn't you want to get out of trouble? You're free. I don't know. That's why would you want that? Right. I don't know. You can't ask. You can't hold my opinion. It's what is that the thing that I always get in trouble? Not trouble, but at work, everyone's like, you always say, I don't know, but I think, and I'm like, that's, that's it. Cause I don't, I don't know. I, my opinions are not like relegated to what I know. Whenever my mom, right. Whenever we, we, we were kids, we used to ask my mom, like, mom, do we have any more like sandwich bags? And like, I think we have some in the basement closet. Like they're in the basement closet. Well, she knew. Yeah. She knew. Like mom says, I think it means I know. But it's a hard thing I know. But yeah, I I don't know. I don't think it's that hard. And I I would like to believe it isn't that rare. I mean, there's definitely, look, 
there's always the all too easy trap of pretending to know and acting and faking. And then you realize, oh my God, I'm, I'm too deep in now. Um, that's all too easy to fall into. But I don't know. I, I don't think it's that rare. I don't think it's that hard. I, it shouldn't be that hard for people to say, I didn't know. Really I disagree. I actively just dis- no, and I, I this is this I will I will die on this. I, I, I think he's saying it shouldn't be, but you're saying it is. But I'm saying it is. Yeah. Right. Like I I see constantly people not feeling comfortable when they know when they don't know, and you don't want to admit it because I think it's vulnerable, right? Like, what if someone thinks I'm stupid? What if someone thinks that they don't respect me? What if what if I not knowing means that they won't regard me good as a human? What if they think I'm not it's, worthy? It's it's ironic because from a uh, like a work perspective, like a career perspective, you put all this time into studying whatever your craft is. And then to sit there and say, well, I don't know, you're accepting that there's still more to learn, but for some reason, people don't always like to hear that. People don't like to say, well, you should know. Um, or it's- right? That's a great point. That's a great point. If, 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 if you actually do believe that there is more to be learned, in whatever field it is, and you haven't reached the summit of all knowledge, then you should have no problem saying, I don't know. Like, I know what I know. I'm, I'm quite accomplished and intelligent, thank you very much. But I still have a lot to learn. Um, I don't, I don't, and look, I'm not gonna argue the point that people do feel that way. Um, I just think it's something that, that there's an easy fix. And you really, you, are, you really aren't judged that harshly for saying, I don't know, unless it really is your field, your specialty, your sub, sub, sub niche specialty that you advertise yourself as an expert on. And then you say, eh, not sure. But otherwise, like, say, I don't know, say, I'm not sure I'll get back to you. Um, but, but really, I haven't found, I say it all the time, people ask the question on Judaism. I mean, Judaism is very broad. I don't know everything about Judaism. I'm not the, the master of all things Jewish. Um, I say I don't know all the time. I, I haven't seen it come back to bite me. I haven't seen it come back to you know, have people lose respect or lose their regard for me. And somehow I find out people are talking about me behind my back. Oh, can you believe the rabbi said he doesn't know? Um, no, I, I, think it's, I think it's something that should be, we should be more comfortable saying. The Talmud has a great line. Teach your tongue to say I don't know. Um, and, and I think we all gain society gains, the individual gains. It, Is it perhaps- well, at the very least we can, we can make it easier for other people to say, I don't know. We can, by, by, by framing questions certain ways, by, by, you know, inserting it into conversation and so on by admiring, like we, we, we say a lot about, we build our society by what we admire and what we look up to. If we admire somebody for saying, I don't know, then everybody around us in earshot's like, oh, that's how you get respect these days, huh? I don't know. I'll try it. But that's the point, right? Like, that's what I was saying is, is like, wouldn't it be nice to have that open dialogue where you have the ability to say, I don't know, let's talk about it. Where both people are like, look, I have no clue. Let's just have a conversation about it. Like, I can sit here and be like, I'm a bad Jew. And you can be like, no, you're not. I'm like, right. But that won't ever change my feeling that I'm a bad Jew. Like, that won't, right? Like, there's nothing you hypothetically an expert in Judaism, hypothetically, right? Mm-hmm. Can say to me that will make me not feel like I'm a bad Jew. And that is decades at this point of conditioning, right? I'm going to keep trying though. You can, but don't you think it's an interesting thing that how do you have those conversations? 
right? Like, how do you have those conversations where you're like, I have this list of questions where I'm sitting here mm-hmm. being like, okay, like, I would like to be able to tell my, like, my husband, like, this is what Judaism is, right? When I don't mm-hmm. think I'm an expert, but I have experiences mm-hmm. that I'm curious about that mm-hmm. would be helpful to have these conversations. And you do, like, jokes aside, you ask all the time. You're like, what does this mean? Well, yeah, because, like, I mean, it's part of you and it's, you know, you know what my thing is all about. I am an expert mm-hmm. at Christianity. Oh. <laughs> well, I may not be a good shoe, but I know I am no expert I know we have we, we have 10 rules and you don't follow them. You don't have 10 rules. We don't. Those are the commandments. Those aren't the rules. Yeah. Those are ours. Those are ours. Those are ours. They're ours. We did them. <laughs> Moses stood on the mountain. That's Jewish. That's not the New Testament. Scheme. So I apparently learned nothing <laughs> when I went to a... Awan is... You do know that the Old Testament is literally just like the Torah, right? No. That's like our Bible. I was going to start at the new one. It's better, but... (laughs) You know what? I think back to this saying, I don't know. I think it's a personality trait because I think if you're... If you're a person that's willing to say I don't know you're also a person that's willing to accept hearing I don't know as an answer because I don't think you can be of the mindset where if say you're a manager you can't be tolerant of your of your employees saying I don't know and not be comfortable saying to your supervisor I don't know so you have to be of that mentality that if you're willing to hear it, you're also willing to say it. And learn, though. Yeah. I think that's the big thing, is it's not even, I don't know, it's that you're willing to learn, but I think more importantly, to be wrong. Like, you right. can absolutely take the next year convincing me that I'm not a bad Jew, right? Like, and like, right. the openness is that, like, eventually, I do hope that something is said that convinces me that I'm not, right? Like I said, like, you can try. But like, there's layers, right? But then it's the question of like, what is a good Jew? Right, because that's a whole other, whole other discussion. And apparently, you have apparently you have that one all figured out because you've already gone through the list and you've said this is what makes a good Jew. I not never me, then that. I must be bad. No, I never see. What? But this is the, you want me to argue the semantics with you. I never claim to know what makes a good Jew. All I claimed is that I'm. And how can you know if you're bad? How can you know if you're bad? <laughs> that is not the point of this conversation. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, but it's, it's, it's but like, <laughs> nobody asked you what they question <laughs> But that's the thing, like, that's the intangible thing, right? Is that you don't know, and so you default to not knowing. And so, like, I default to, I'm a bad Jew because I question God, even knowing, even knowing that the core tenant, one of the core tenets of being, you know, Jewish is questioning. But I sit there mm-hmm. and I think, I question. So how can I say that... I'm a good Jew when I question, how can I say I'm a good Jew when I follow, I think naturally by inclination, and I'm not even gonna say me because I think most people follow that, one could probably make the argument that being a good Jew is just being a good person, right? Like there's probably an argument that could be made in there, right? Like if you Mm -hmm. do good things and you try, right? You could argue that humanitarianism is a form of Judaism. Right? But you could to some, argue- To some degree, there, there's legs to that on some level. 
right? Because that's the whole, like mm -hmm. I said it before, but it's that tikkun olam, right? Like that's one of the things that we learned in Hebrew school and it's a big part of it, right? It's definitely and, a major ingredient. I, I think it would be a mistake to confine Judaism to humanitarianism because then Judaism is unnecessary and, and redundant. And I don't think that's true. Um, but I think it's a big part of it, for sure. You cannot, let's, the, the reverse is certainly true. You will never be a good Jew without being a good humanitarian and a decent person. That's for sure true. Right. Question is, is it, is it limited to all that? Uh, I think there's more. Well, but, but that's my point. So not whole, but partial, right? Partially yeah, acknowledging, sure. right? Like for sure. But then there's, there's the, the argument that like, I didn't marry a Christian, oh, sorry, a Christian, a Jew. Mm -hmm. But then you take that to the next step again, which is okay. But what is, what is being Jewish? Like, I will tell you that one thing I have never denied is being Jewish, right? Like, it is never something, mm -hmm. like, I've always, it has been very important for me from the second I understood the history of Judaism, that I am Jewish. I know I am Jewish. I have never denied any of that. And a big part of that has been, like, how can you deny something that murdered my family, right? Like, when I was a child growing up, that's what it was. Like, you are Jewish, and this is who you are, and this is what your family died for, right? Mm -hmm. But when you look at what your future is, right? What is it? Where are those things? Where do they land? But again, like I will also make the argument that like part of being, let's call me a mediocre Jew. Let's like compromise on that term for now. Hey, we made progress in 10 minutes. Look at that. It's been an hour. Um, but like, <laughs> <laughs> mediocre at best. But part of that is like, I didn't marry a Jew. List of issues with that. But okay. I also didn't marry someone who took that away from me, you know, who was just like, well, no, we're only going to do Christmas, right? Like, we're right. only going to do this. The other argument is you're not mm -hmm. the greatest Christian. Oh, oh, yeah. No, <laughs> no, I'm going to get, like, when I die, I'm going to get off the train at the first stop. And I mean, like, this doesn't work. medium place. I'm mean, like, this, I'm going to get back on the train. I'm Purgatory? Go, yeah, yeah, no, there's, no, I'm not, uh. I haven't like, but I would say what's interesting. I'm mediocre. Is I'm like that mediocre. I haven't done any of the bad stuff, but I mean, no. But my point is that like it's an interesting thing to navigate, right? You know, I don't because when you're not religious, certainly, and when you don't, it know is certainly an interesting thing to navigate. And I'll tell you that the if you think it's as easy as just being religiously observant to consider yourself a good Jew, surprise, there are lots of religious Jews who think of themselves as bad Jews too because of either the higher bar or they know that it's a little bit more sophisticated than just keeping Shabbos. Um, or they also don't know really what the metric is and they're being too hard on themselves and unfairly so. Um, but this so is the question. Right, and I think it's a problem question. for a lot of young people is like, what is it? Where do it's I a live? very, very, very don't good question. Make those series of choices that are like tick the boxes. What if I'm stuck in this middle of this complex understanding? Mm -hmm. And you should be able to, yeah. I think the biggest thing is whether it's wh whichever side you look at it, it's, you know, at the end of the day, can you, it's not justify, but live with, feel like a good person. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, have I done bad things to some people? Yeah, we've all, 
we've all slighted somebody in a certain way or you know even if you didn't mean it did they take it as more of a slight but you know it's the intention i think and that's the thing you is didn't kill anybody go ahead um i'll say this instead of instead of looking at it as the question of you know what am i um you say who am maybe I? the question should be looking at in other words instead of looking at um man as as noun maybe we should look at man as verb as opposed in other words in opposed to defining ourselves in a sort of static way of this is who i am or i'm not um maybe the question is what am i doing right now how am i behaving right now and and maybe that definition can change in the course of an hour where at the beginning of the hour i was doing something stupid at the end of that, I was doing something good. So therefore, when I was doing something stupid, I was stupid. When I was doing something good, I was good. And come back to me in five minutes, the plot thickens, you'll see what happens next. And that will be my, that will be my definition then. Foundation of our podcast. See what happens then. <laughs> um, but that's, but that's, that's, I think that way is a little bit more in tune with the reality of being a human being. And that things are fluid. and you know, where's that line? Is it from Alice in Wonderland? Sometimes I change my mind 11 times before breakfast or something. Yep. Right? We're, we're, we're fluid. We have mood. We have feelings. We have, you know, drives and urges and ups and downs. We have moments where we're in control, moments where we're completely overwhelmed. So many feelings. Um, yeah, all the feels. And that's, and that's life. And that's life. And so there is never... Maybe there's never a static answer to the question of who am I, what am I? It depends on what I'm doing at any, at any given moment. But that's the thing, like there wasn't, I will say that like everything aside, like there wasn't when I was a kid, there was literally nowhere where I heard these conversations happening, right? Like it was a very linear approach. It was like, you're a good Jew, you go to, you know, you go to synagogue, you're part of the community, you belong because of this list of reasons, you belong because of this, right? Like this is where right. you are, this is who your parents are. It's a very easy approach. Right. And there was nowhere where anybody was like, no, this is actually a like really great conversation to have. And like, right. you can still exist in the sphere of like, because what I've never done is even though I say I'm a bad Jew, I have never, I've never denied the fact that I'm Jewish, right? Like I've right. never not felt Jewish. I've never not never felt like, against it. Right? Like right. my identity has always been like, no, I'm Jewish. Like, and it's, it's been very linear for me because like my dad is Christian and an atheist, right? But I have never felt that like i have never identified as anything but jewish right and you pair that no but you pair that with those other adjacent feelings of not feeling like you're welcome in the community and then you mm -hmm. pair that again with feeling like well it makes sense like it's an easy thing to understand heaven and hell in the christian paradox right so where do you go to find out about those those areas of gray where you're not told well you're like because again like we had this conversation once loosely that like it's like well of course our kid will be jewish i'm jewish like this is this is who we are we're never not going to do that right right but how do you navigate those spheres yeah when you're trying to figure out these really complex gray areas where there's no easy answer right, right. when so you're not I, I, yeah because you're scared yeah yeah no and i hear this actually from a lot of young adults um and the problem is and a lot of them say the same thing you were saying like when I was a kid, when I was growing up, this is how it was. And I never knew X, Y, Z. And the problem, I think, is the challenge for parents 
and educators is that it's very hard, or at least we think it's hard. Maybe we all maybe we all have it wrong, but it seems to be hard to to discuss nuanced, subtle issues with young children. Mm-hmm. And so we we again, perhaps totally erroneously, um, we as parents and educators have this have this idea that we sort of all agree on that we have to present it to kids in a really simplified way, which means inevitably erasing a lot of the gray and shoving it either into, into the black or into the white. And that's what you give to the kids, really simple, really unsophisticated, uncomplicated um, presentations. The problem is that that's only, meant to be as a, that's only meant to be a foundation and you're supposed to evolve and mature that messaging as the child grows older and more capable of subtlety, more capable of nuanced discussion. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. And so you have an adult who is completely capable of nuanced thought, stuck with the child's understanding of Judaism and thinking, well, I mean, there's nice things there, but I, I, there's so many questions, so many loose ends and so many dead ends that I, I can't really see myself there anymore. So I just put it on the shelf and I take it off the shelf for Passover and Yom Kippur. And then it's just too complicated, too overwhelming. And I don't know where to begin. So I just leave it. Um, and maybe the solution is, not that this helps you, but maybe the solution is that we have to give the kids more credit and, and try to show them nuance at a younger age. Try to show them depth and subtlety and the gray um, and the spectrum of things in, in their youth. No, and I, I say know? this seriously because it's, it's a very secure thing when you're a kid. And it's like, does God exist? Yes, no. Right? Like, it's a very, I, and I say this because when I was a kid, I was very much right. So I, I was raised knowing I was Jewish, but I went to Christian schools, right? And I will tell you that I was always really jealous of, of the Christian kids who always grew up going to church, who were always very confident in their ability to be like, no, I believe right. in God. It was very, right. and I remember just sitting there being like, oh my God, I, I wish I felt that. Like, I wish I didn't, I do, right? Like I, I have a very clear memory yeah. of, of sitting in church with my friends, singing in choir, right? Because it was part of my school thing. We would go and we would sing in, in churches. And I loved feeling part of that community, even though I was never part of that community. And I loved right. their confidence. I loved that they were just so secure in their faith. And what's yeah. interesting is watching as I grow older, my friends question it more, but I've stayed consistent, right? Like I've stayed yeah. with, I have, I've stayed with, I don't know, right? Like I have stayed right. very agnostic, leaning towards being belief in a higher power of some sort. Mm-hmm. But I've always been very, to this day, I talk about being jealous of my friends who had that confidence at a, at a young age. Like, I wish I had sure. that, right? But think about it from your perspective. How would you tell your kids it's okay to question? And I mean, like, mm-hmm. you know, your, your thing is education and learning. And the, like, I understand that context. But I would think that as a kid, it would be very scary to have this clarity taken away from you. And I would think as a parent, you want your kid to feel that safety. You want your kid to feel that part of... Mm-hmm security and how do you take that away from them and tell them it's right. okay to question the details but right. it's okay to be- so, like it's such a yeah. semantic thing to tell a seven-year-old how do you and i'm not saying you specifically i'm saying in general how do you right. navigate those things it's a it's a tough question it is a very tough question and you know um in yiddish there's an expression you practice on your first kid um and so you know my oldest is 13 and and that's you know that's a pretty good age to start maybe you know exploring 
some of these ideas, you know, uh, 13, 14, you hit puberty, your mind is maturing, your body is maturing, you're not a little kid anymore. But you right. still are. <laughs> but you are, right? You are. But, but you're not, you know, you're not eight years old. Um, you, can, you can try to introduce some nuance to a kid. I think also it's important that you, you show the kid, like, I don't want my kids to be perfect. And, and actually, I was thinking about this just this week, yesterday, two days ago, and on Shabbos. Like, I, I really want to do a better job of communicating to my kids. Like, my expectation is not that you should be perfect. I mean, sure, try your best, of course. You know, we have high expectations. And the Torah has high expectations of us. No, the Torah has very high expectations of, of our behavior. We don't give ourselves slack. That's rule number one. You don't, you don't cut yourself slack. Like you, you expect from yourself and you push yourself, and that's the only way. But I don't want, I don't expect perfection. No, no, nobody bats a thousand. Um, what I do want is I want you to have the resilience to know your way out of trouble. Know your way back when you get lost and you get confused. I don't want you to get stuck in, in feeling lost or, or feeling, um, you know, self, uh, you know, uh, you know, when you, when you, when you're reprimanding yourself for whatever bad that you've done, I don't want you to overdo it to the point where you give up. I want you to know how to get back. I want you to know how to, how to climb back in the saddle. That's what I think is really a, on a religious level, even like never mind as a life skill. I think that's the most important skill. You're going to fall. Uh, can we stop pretending that we don't fall? Of course you fall. Yeah. But, can we stop right? pretending? And it's, uh, maybe a cliche, but I just want you to have the skill and to just know, like, dust yourself off and get back up. It's fine. It's really fine. Well, I think it's, you know, it's something telling where if a, if a, a child is faced with doing a bad action, following a crowd, and they take that moment to think, is this worth doing? But then the consequence of um, the parent finding out is worse. You know, I think that that's that in and of itself is is probably the worst thing. Where it's they should know that okay, you know what I I look at it as like smoking. My parents were very much said don't yeah. smoke, don't smoke. Well, naturally, when I got older, there were some kids who smoked. So I tried a cigarette. Meanwhile, it's years later, I found um, years later at a family reunion, my mother had a cigarette, but I uh, like they had smoked as well. Yeah, it's just like, wait, wait a minute, you told me all these bad things were going to happen. Whereas it's like, you know, I, I think you approach that sort of thing where you say to your kid, like, look, like I tried it here's what I thought, you know, I know somebody who is really addicted to them. And like that, that, you know, you sort of approach that where it's mm -hmm. um, disseminating. Tell your kids about your failures. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned that because just on Shabbos, I was telling my kids a story of how I once got caught um, using profanity in seventh grade. And can you imagine the horror? And, <laughs> for me, but and my teacher I, gave me, I see how a bigger deal for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, you know, a religious Orthodox day school. 
and it was a loud it was a loud booming across the whole classroom use of the profanity. It wasn't just you know one on one, and my teacher gave me an assignment to write down to copy down in my own handwriting um, a full page of the Talmud that discusses the importance of using clean speech. And so I'll never forget where that page of the Talmud was. And you should have seen the look on my kids' faces when I told them this story. Like, I didn't say, you know, all the juicy details, but I just told them, you know, basically what happened, that I did something I shouldn't have done, and I got caught, and I got punished. They're like, it was musty TV in my house. <laughs> they were all over it. And I was happy. You know, I was actually happy that um, I wasn't happy that, the, you know, I wasn't proud to tell the story per se, but I was happy that I showed them, hey, look, I'm a pretty decent guy. I recovered from that disaster, right? Mm-hmm. You can too. But don't you think it's that a funny idea. thing? Don't you think it's a funny thing? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna push on this because I think what's interesting is I have a very clear, you know my mom. Mm-hmm. My mom is great. We all think my mom is great, right? Because she's gonna watch this someday and find us. <laughs> <laughs> but my point with that is that like, I have the most clear memory of the first day my mom was sworn in front of me, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't remember why, but I remember her cursing and I just remember being like, you know, and to be clear, the other day that I remember having that reaction is that like, if anybody ever watches this, they will not understand this. But as a fellow Jew, you will understand this. I remember the day she swore and I remember the day she bought a frozen lasagna and put it in the oven. Like those are the two days. And I literally, I have this marked memory of her putting, and I don't even think it was lasagna. I think it was like, I don't know. It was a frozen dinner. And I just remember her putting it in the oven and I was just like, my world shattered, right? Like my mom, and I was like 15 before she did anything that she didn't make by, and like mom was an executive, mom has her MBA. You know, she was, she was, senior management and everything she did always home cooked meals right but i remember those two days and like i remember this jarring feeling that like oh my god my mother's human right Right. like can my perfect mother be a human at the same time as being my perfect mother and i think that's a version of what you were saying with your kids like they sat there and they were like god my perfect father because you're perfect to your parent your parents are perfect to you like and i don't have a similar feeling with your parents, but I absolutely remember the day I realized my parents were human. Right. And not, mm-hmm. I know this is probably right. me, but not God, right? Like when you're a right. kid, your parents are... No, I know what you mean. Right? Right. No, I know exactly what you mean. And it's, it's, you a it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating concept of, of like humanizing to be like, our heroes yeah. are also human, right? Our heroes make mistakes. Our heroes do these things it's okay to question because what that does is that teaches you who you are and that questioning doesn't have to drive you away. Like, I will say that like for me, one of the things that drove me away is the feeling that if I didn't perfectly believe and if my beliefs didn't align with reform, in my case, Judaism, mm-hmm. we weren't welcome. Mm-hmm. Right. And don't you think it would have been a fascinating thought experiment for what would have happened if it was like, that's okay. You're still welcome you're still able to come and have these conversations. Your kids can still come here. You know, like you can marry like a really, really lapsed Catholic boy and still be a welcome part of our community. Like it's a really interesting thing because it does feel like there's a bit of that you're perfect or 
question. I'll ask my parents why they why no. I got baptized. Well, that's a really great point because it's a very it's a very tricky. You have to really walk the tightrope, right? Because if you go too much to the side of "Hey, I'm human. I make mistakes," then at, at, if you overdo that, then there's no virtue and no idealism left. Yeah, yeah. And you, you don't want to lose up. that. Not at all. Yeah. So. There is a certain trade-off, you're right. There's a trade-off in, you know, oh my God, my hero is human. I think the trick is if you can somehow make sure, I don't know if you can, but try to preserve that, that hero, you know, position and say, look, I am indeed your hero and I am indeed great. However, I want you to know that I've overcome, you know, this uh, little failure or this little disaster and yet I'm still that great person you think of. It doesn't necessarily have to take away from the greatness, but it needs to be maybe framed properly. Um, if I had to choose, I would probably take my chances with a little bit of disclosure, a little bit of chiseling away, chipping away at the hero in order, if, if I knew that the trade-off was they know that you can always recover and bounce back, I would say, for sure worth it. If it was just for the sake of humanizing and humanizing and then everybody just becomes boring failures, I mean, what's the point? At least, yeah. at least let them have an illusion of a greatness to look up to if that's what you're offering me. But I really believe that you can um, give kids a sense of, hey, look, real people make mistakes. Real people, you know, kick themselves in the shins. Real people are, are self-defeating sometimes, but you can always bounce back. You can always recover. You can always clean up. You can always get another chance. You can always make it up, um, at least in, in the context of your own life. Maybe not you know, with other people. Sometimes you can't fix what you've done to other people. But between yourself and God, between yourself and yourself, you can always get back to it. And I think that's very important. Like, like you know, what I said before, you've got to leave room for redemption. But that's it, right? And what happens when society takes the place of leaving room for redemption? This is, I feel like this is a whole other conversation, but I think that it's like, it's just, it's interesting to think about, right? Is that what makes, what is room for redemption? Right? No, and I'm serious, like dead serious. If I were to like look you in the eye and say like, look, I am not convinced you can ever make me believe in God beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? Is there still room for redemption? And what does that mean for me from your perspective, right? As somebody who- right. You know, like, and where, where is that line of me being like, I'm not close to it, right? Like you and I have had sure. this conversation multiple times that there's nothing in me that's sitting here being like, nope, God does not exist, burn it all down, right? Like that is not right. my angle. My angle is like, right. I'm questioning and where is the place that right. I can belong if I question, right? Like, sure. do I have a right to exist in this sphere? Do I you have belong a right? in the Jewish study hall. Do, do what the... I have already done one doctorate. <laughs> no, but that, but that... But that is, okay, it's a little bit disingenuous, just as a side point on this whole thing. Like people always say, oh, we're Jews. We question all the time. I mean, look at the Talmud. The Talmud's full of questions. The Talmud's full of questions, but it's questions by people that have their axioms unexamined. Not unexamined, but, but they're not in question. The axioms aren't in question. Of course there's a God. Of course he gave us the Torah. Of course we're obligated to observe it. The question is, do we have to eat this much matzo or that much matzo? That's what we're questioning. So it's a little bit disingenuous to point to the Talmud as, aha, you see, question. Um, that being said, um, I'll just share with you something that a uh, physicist 
theoretical physicist who was here last year, two years ago, um, two years ago, I think, um, came and he said, he spoke about the burden of proof and how the burden of proof is different in different disciplines. How, how in science, you know, what, what constitutes proof in, in math is not the same thing as what constitutes proof in, in, in um, chemistry or in biology and so on. And the definition of it has now been proven is different in different fields. And he just wanted to bring that up to show everybody, like, when it comes to God, when it comes to things, like, you might not require the most, um, you know, extreme definition of proof for something to be admissible as a fact, as knowledge, as not, you know, mumbo-jumbo. What separates mumbo-jumbo from, from knowledge isn't only the most extreme definition of proof. So there's a spectrum of proof. And his argument was, you'll find enough proof somewhere on the spectrum to make you feel comfortable saying, you know what? I think it's pretty more likely, Occam's razor, that there is a God rather than not. Um, again, don't you think it goes that's a whole That's a whole nother discussion, but just I'm, I'm just throwing that nugget out there. Well, and again, clearly we're going to do this again because that is a whole other discussion. But my point with that is, don't you think a big part of that is being made to feel like you can have those conversations without not being welcome? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Right? Because again, if I could have had these conversations, like that's why I'm saying like, this is an interesting way in, in which to talk. Because if I had been able to hear someone questioning these things and been made to feel like you're allowed to question this, you're allowed to have these conversations. And like you and I have absolutely had the conversation over like, like texting that it is, it is a very different thing for you to talk and be like, well, here are the list of reasons why you're not welcome and Derek's not welcome adjacently than it is for you to be like, for me to be like, don't believe in God, I'm out, right? Like that is a very different conversation and not the one we're having. But the flip side of that is how do we have this conversation that makes it okay to ask these questions and not be made to feel like by virtue of asking these questions, you aren't welcome. By virtue of asking- You're already a heretic. And who you're married to, you're a heretic and you're not welcome, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, want, I, want to, I want to back you up on that because when I was a teenager, I don't remember how old I was exactly when I heard this for the first time, 16, 17, 18, something like that. Um, I was taught, this must have been in a lecture of some kind, that in the book of the Tanya, which is the number one primary book of Chabad, Hasidic, religious theology and philosophy, um, the author, who was the founder of the Chabad movement over 20 years ago, a great, great, great Hasidic rabbi, mm -hmm. writes about how for, even for good people, and even for good Jews, they may sometimes experience doubts in their faith in God. They may sometimes wonder, is there a God? And that that's okay, and that that can be explored, and that it's not a sign of, you know, Satan has taken hold of your soul. And I honestly, I almost cried when I heard that, because guess what? I was 17 years old and thinking about it, like, hmm. what? But right away, you're like, huh. I didn't think that, I promise, right? And then as soon as I heard that, I'm like, what? You mean to tell me that 200 years ago, like in the shtetl, they're already giving out a license for this stuff? Like you could, it's okay? It was such a relief. Like nobody wants to not believe. 
I don't think anybody out there set that with an agenda. I hope one day to reach the point where I couldn't care less about believing in God. Like people would love, the average person would love to believe except question. And, and like you said, you don't have, you sometimes you say you don't have the permission to explore or you're terrible for exploring or even doubting in the first place. Um, and so for me, hearing that at that age was incredibly liberating. It's not like I went out, I, I didn't go out and, and broadcast my doubts then either. I was still nervous about it. But at least I knew that, you know, it was a common issue. It was like, because if you don't talk about it, you think you're the only one. And then you see it in this old text, and like, well, clearly it was an issue back in the shtetl in Russia. So I must not be that crazy. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was so good to hear. And, but that's it, right? Is that how do, you, how do you make people feel like... Well, yeah. I'll tell you how. The most religious person has to be the one to open up and say, hey, everybody! Like you have ulterior Talking to you live from the mountaintop, high on the hierarchy of religious folks, I have my doubts. <sighs> that's how. But that's, that's it, right? Because yeah. it's the vulnerability, it's, right? It's interesting yeah. when that one person takes a stand or says something or just even a casual comment, how many other people say, oh, yeah, you know, actually, I was thinking that too. And then it mm -hmm. gets the ball rolling. And, like, mm -hmm. there shouldn't ever be that hindrance to that learning, that, that willingness to explore or question or mm -hmm. just... It's when leadership opens themselves up to being human, right? It's, it, honestly, yeah. it's, it's actually probably the same as your parents. When your parents are willing to acknowledge that, like, we are human, we are flawed, we still right. probably know more than you by virtue of being here longer or studying deeper. Again, right. like, I will never you argue to be the expert on, on Judaism, right? My mom, who's older than you, we will not say by how much, but I'm pretty sure you and I are the same age. Two about. years. Two years. Two, three years. I'm pretty sure the rabbi and I are at the same age, so, like, three years but like but it's that virtue of like when you're willing to make those things and say like look like i have dedicated my life to studying this so even if i don't know the answer i at least know how to go about and talking about finding the answer right or talking about it in a meaningful way but mm -hmm. being open to sitting there and listening like that's a huge mm -hmm. thing it goes back to your right. smartest person in the room you don't want you want to be you don't want to be the dumbest and you don't want to be the smartest because you want to have somebody that you can learn from, but somebody you can teach to. But it's, I think it's so deep. And I, I will honestly, like, I know we've got to go in at seven 30, but like seven 30, so late, like just basically like midnight in my normal new COVID <laughs> routine. Of, I know. Right? Yep. But it's this fascinating thing that like, what I will say is the smartest people I know never want to be the smartest one in the room. And I have always been like verging on arrogant, but confident that like, I am, I am smart. Like I've never questioned my intelligence. Like it's never been something that I've, I've been worried about not being smart. But mm -hmm. part of that is I know what I don't know. Right. And I, like mm -hmm. I said earlier, I don't want to be the smartest one in the room. I want someone I can learn from. I don't need to teach someone. I don't ironically, I don't have this this deep set drive to teach, right? I like teaching, but I don't I don't need it. But what I do need is to be in an environment where like questioning is encouraged, right? And this idea that if someone's going to tell me I'm wrong, I'm actually incredibly open to being told I'm wrong. If they can prove it to you. 
prove it, right? Like sit there and like what? give me the facts, yeah. like give me the science, yeah. give me the basis yeah. that's sitting there being like, it's okay that this, this, and this, it's okay that yeah. you did this, right? Like it's okay that you didn't have this traditional road, but you can still follow down it. Like I, I have this very clear memory of being with Derek's family and it was like, the first time I met them and his sister goes to me and she's like, well, Merry Christmas. And I was like, I'm actually not Christian, <laughs> right? Like I have this very visceral memory of sitting there and remember Stacy said it to me and I was like, I'm not, I'm not Christian. And she was like, oh, that's okay. And I was like, I, I know that's okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I'm not asking you if it's okay. Right. And that's not a knock at her. Like I get it. Like she wanted me to feel like it was oh, a different culture, a different mindset. Right. But I was sitting there and I was like, I wasn't asking your permission to not be Christian. Like, it's just, I'm right. telling you, it's not who I am. Right. But again, like, do you know how vice versa intimidating that would have been if I was, not even if I was, when I have sat in a room full of people who were more traditionally Jewish and I'm sitting there and they're like, well, you're Jewish, you get it. And I'd be like, I don't actually get it. That is not how I was raised. I was raised with a family of Holocaust survivors whose approach to religion was very complicated. You know what right. I mean? Like, right. It was a very complicated thing. And right. how do I navigate all of these different things? Like, one of the things I will tell you is that it's actually, and you might understand this, it's a very comparable thing that I never feel more American than when I'm in Canada talking to Canadians. But when I'm in the States, I never feel more Canadian right? And it's this weird tension that when I'm in Canada, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're very American. And I'm like, I am very American, yes. And when I'm in the States, everyone's like, Phew, you are very Canadian, <laughs> right? So again, when I'm with Jews, they're like, oh, yeah, you're, you're Jewish. And when I'm with Christians, they're like, yeah, Kate's very Jewish. Like, you yeah. know, and it's this weird back and forth that how do you navigate your That's identity? What when you straddle, when you straddle different worlds. Yeah. And again, like, I don't know if, you, if that resonates, but like, I feel that moving from like Brooklyn to KW would have a lot of that, like, similar, I don't want to call them tensions, but like moments of like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I still, I still cross the street on a red light. I can't believe that's a thing here. I still can't believe that's a thing here. And I refuse to accept that it's a thing here. Sorry, we don't cross the red lights? Because I've absolutely yeah. gotten grief from my friends. I'm like, there's no one around. Walk. And they're like, where are you going? Yeah. Canadians Stop. don't cross on red lights. They just stand there and wait for no good like, reason. Why would I wait? There's just no one around. Again. When the, second, the seconds are ticking by, my friends. The seconds. Don't let me in with that. I've been... In my travels, I've learned no cars. You just go. But you've also traveled with mom. No, I'm serious. And you've absolutely oh. brought up, like, we're sitting there and there's a car heading towards us. Mom's like, they'll stop. And I'm like, Mom, it's oh, a red know. light. It's a red light and the car is driving. Yes. Like, stop. And it's like this game of chicken, right? But yeah, but yeah but that's, that's just one silly example. But yeah, example, to, to but your it, point. It holds true. I, yeah, I definitely relate to that, you know, call it a Venn diagram of identity. Um, and uh, I feel like that's a secret. Unfortunately, game, so. unfortunately, I can say that when I go back to New York, um, I've lately been feeling a little bit like the Canadian who came to visit, just a tad, because it's inevitable some of the American and some of the New Yorker will will rub off, not entirely, but like I've definitely become a little bit more, you know, reserved. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, ooh, 
Ooh, look at you, all you uh, unreserved people. All you Americans. Um, yeah. So, but I'm sure you but, felt it, like, with yeah. my mom, right? Like, my mom, for all of her years in Canada, she's very American. Yeah, and, no, that's why I love hanging out with her. But that's my point. Like, I, I was going to say, all of the cultural things aside, like, I think why you like hanging out with my mom is there are those echoes of, like, she is every New York Jewish aunt. Just say it how it is. Just say it how it is. She's great. Just just stop beating around the bush and pretending. Just be real. But, no, neither one of us are monsters. You know, we're not monsters. We're not baby murderers. Just to speak. Why do you go to baby murderers? <laughs> this is your, like, we're not monsters. We're not baby that's murderers. A, that's There's no baby. middle ground there. <laughs> no, but don't you think that's an interesting thing, right? That, like, you and my mom, who are, let's just say polar opposite in so many ways, there's that point of connection because you're both New York Jews at heart. And like, that is who you yeah. are. As different yeah. as identities are, like you're from Brooklyn, she's from Queens. This is, there's still that generational difference, but it's still fundamentally mm -hmm. who you are. And like yeah. that, that interesting tension is very much how I feel because I was on one hand raised very American, very New York Jewish, very all of this stuff. And on the other hand, I'm very Canadian. So where is my place in this thing, right? Like, where is that role that you lay? And I think that I'm like- positive. The best of both. Obviously I'm perfect, come on. But- <laughs> You and Mary Poppins. I have a bag and you reach and you pull out the umbrella with a thing, it's great. But my point is that I think that like that tension or versions of that exists for everybody. It's like, what is it to be to be Jewish? What is it to be happy? What is it to be a good person? Is it just doing good things? Does the motivation behind it matter? Like I would say your motivation matters more than, than the outcome or than the task. But does it, right? Like I if, I, if I die questioning God, does that make me a good Jew? Knowing that I did a good thing and led my, led my life well right or mediocre jew where do we where did we negotiate it that i'm a mediocre <laughs> we upgraded we upgraded to mediocre mediocre jew right mm -hmm. where is it and how do you have these I don't, know. I don't know i don't know nobody told me i don't know but like it's a great question to ask it's a great question to ask. I think I think you get a lot closer to whatever the truth is. I think you get a you get a lot closer to it with the questions and with the the definite answer, so to speak. I think the answer comes like you know layers in an onion. You get one answer, then you like sort of grow out of that answer, then you get another answer. And well, onions would come up in some semblance of this conversation. It would be cooking or thinking. Of course, no, but there's there's I think there's layers. All these questions, there's layers to the answer. And as you mature, you're, you become, a, you know, you become receptive to yet another layer. And another decade goes by, you become receptive to another layer. And, and it's an ongoing thing. And I think that the key point is you stagnate when you think that you've arrived. And you will always find closer, deeper truth if you keep the question alive. So keep the question alive. And make sure that you're creating an environment around you for all the people in your life, colleagues, friends, family, mm -hmm. to be in question mode. Because that's really the, the driving force behind all growth. And but so you play a role in that. I play a role in that. We all play a role in giving each other permission 
to question and, and live that way. But it's the confidence. I, I will actually die on the hill that it's the confidence thing. Like I can tell you that when I was 20, 22, 23, 24, 25, having this conversation with you would have terrified me, right? Yeah. Like I would have been like, yeah. why would, like, like, who am I to question you? And it's not even that I'm questioning you, but ask these questions of you, tell you yeah. that I feel these things, right? Like it's, it's, it is such an intimidating thing to go to somebody who's an expert, granted our whole right. conversation about experts, right? But show that level no, of like, no, but I understand. I understand, but that's how I'm perceived for better or for worse. Right. And again, I get it because like again, like I am I teach at the university, right? Like I sit there and I tell students, this is what you need to know to be successful. This is the, the knowledge basis you have to do. Them questioning me, I know it's scary for them. I know it's intimidating for them to message me. I know that the approachability that I have, I so carefully have to foster because I want them to come to me with questions. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't want them to be like, oh, well, you don't want to, you know, do that. And I say this as somebody who exists in this sphere, right, who exists in this like confident area of being confident in my abilities and my intelligence and all of that. It's still hard to have these conversations with you. Right. And again, that's by virtue of like, how do you have them not only in a respectful way, but that fear of like, what if you do tell me I'm a bad Jew? Like, what if we end this conversation? No, but really, right. Like I have right. spent my whole life to having various people be like, mm, don't regress back to bad Jew. We've got, we've no, I won't, I won't ever tell you you're a bad Jew. I might tell you you're dead wrong. But that's different. Bad Jew. Right? Is, but that's the thing. Is that that's, you, all I'll ever, that's the worst I can ever come up with is you're wrong. And then I have to believe you. <laughs> I could prove it. <laughs> but it's a funny thing, right? Like how many people can you have this conversation with and that they won't get scared? Not enough. Not enough. It's a, it's a challenge of mine. It's a big challenge of mine. And it's been on my mind also lately. We were, I had some company here in the sukkah and a couple of the guys were saying, I was telling people how, you know, pandemic, people aren't coming out. I'm thinking maybe I should just go visit people, whoever is able and open to having me visit. It's a great opportunity to visit because I'm not running the events or classes, so may as well go hang out with people. And one of them said, you know, I think a lot of people would be very scared to have you come into their house. Like, what? Really? But mom, like, yeah, it's intimidating. The rabbi coming into my house, that's intimidating. Like, intimidating. So, but you know what's interesting? Mom was. Mom told you the first time you came over, she was terrified. And not because you're the rabbi. And no, because she didn't know what to serve you. She was like, I found cans of... No, you know what I mean? Like, it was literally, it's that much of a visceral reaction. She's like, I didn't want to send him. Right? Like, I couldn't offer him food because I knew that my house was... Oh. No, but right? She's like, I knew. So how do I, I feel welcome, right? And like that's, that's the thing, like that's why I cycle back to every time I think whatever format we do this and why I think it would be helpful for people to hear is it's not only humanizing you, it's humanizing the approach that you can have these conversations, that it's right. okay, right? Like that it's, it's fine that right. Derek sits here and tries to pet our cat and you know, like, but just sits there and it's like, you know, you can. But like, don't eat it, don't eat it. It's not kosher. It's not kosher. I know it's your cat, but you know. That is not kosher. Our cat's not kosher. That's cats better. Cats are not kosher. <laughs> Listen, maybe that's maybe blows that's up on the like vegan pita Jew. <laughs> <laughs> like Jewish pita is just like, oh God, the rabbi oh, said boy. that's not kosher. <laughs> right. Maybe, uh, maybe that should be the title of the podcast. You're allowed to ask. You know? But I think it'd be good. Like, I think it'd be fascinating. I agree. Me I as agree really dumb questions and Derek just be like, they're not so dumb. 
They're not dumb. I can ask dumber questions. But that's they're not dumb, and I think that they're not dumb. First of all, and I do believe that you you represent a lot of people who are silently carrying the weight of these questions and not knowing how to get out and wishing there was a way out or way forward, not out, but. It is a way out because I will tell you that I have absolutely questioned if I have a child, if my child would be welcome, right? Like, would my child, would it be worth me approaching you and all of this, right? Would my child be made to feel like I was made to feel, which is you're not good enough. You're not Jewish enough. You're not welcome Mm -hmm. because you don't hit all of these boxes. Or would it be the flip side of that is you're welcome, but we're going to tell you all of the ways your parents are wrong. You you got to take a book. You got to take a page from my book and just then start like a spin-off religion. That that's all. You we don't do. have anything. You're Catholic. Now, yeah, you're we just Catholic. like spun off, and then there's like this. I, I we just like make up our rules. We you don't like know ne- you know less about Christianity than I know about Christianity, <laughs> and less about Judaism than I know about Judaism. I was. Baptized in a Catholic church. You don't even Does know if you were. Sa- no, I know which one I was. Which one? So St. Michael's, the one across the street from Laurier. My oh, yeah. I have photos of it. No, but like, don't Proof. you think that that's the thing? Like, aside from the tangent, like, I honestly think that's a big thing. Is that like, when people don't know, how do they do it? And I do think that like, through varying levels, I think there are a lot of people like me who are like, can I ask yeah. this? Will I be judged? What if I question? Like, 100%. I don't know. It's 100%. a tough thing. You could come well, on. Let, let's just say this. In, 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 try, in trying to wrap this up, let me just say that I hope that for whoever in the world will ever listen to this, aside from Adele, hi Adele. Because um, she's going to be like, YouTube are bad now. <laughs> um, you won't even listen to get bored. <laughs> I hope that in the last, tell her at the end she has a shout out, so she'll listen the whole way through. Um, I hope that in the last hour and a half, all of us here have demonstrated that there is a, there is permission to explore. You're not you're not um, bad is bad is a funny word. You're not a failure or you're not um, uh, sinful for for wondering or asking or being puzzled or having doubts or being skeptical or even being mildly confident, for that matter, that it's all one big joke. This whole Judaism thing, you know, all that is fine. The only thing that's wrong is when you turn a question into an answer, right? When you when you have a a question is essentially ignorance, right? A question is a lack of knowledge, not a not a positive basis of of actual knowledge. It's the absence of knowledge. You can't make policy on a question. You can't you can't create decisions on a question. But people do that, and that's what I think is 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 the crime and the shame. And, and we hope to avoid that. And, and again, that's where the honesty bit comes in. Like you said, also the confidence comes in to say, hey, I don't know. Let's talk about it. But I hope we proved here that, at least in my book, it's certainly encouraged. I love when somebody, you know, the most exciting text I will ever get, aside from Rabbi, you won the lottery, is Rabbi, I have a question. Honestly, it gets me every time. It gets me every time. I love it. Um, that's, that's the romantic vision that, that got me to sign up for this job is people have questions and I will be somewhat capable of helping them through, um, life questions, Judaism questions, uh, and dilemmas and existential issues and all that kind of stuff. Um, so for me, it actually, anybody who does that does me a favor, helps me justify my choice of career. 
and, and makes my life more meaningful. So you're only helping me have a meaningful day anytime I get a text with a question. Um, well, and I hope that this conversation proves it. Well, no, and like from my end, like it's, it's adjacent to that, is it's not for different reasons, my whole life is questions, right? Like I am a scientist, my life is questioning everything. And my life is helping people navigate very complex information and questioning it. But the flip side of it for me is that I got into that, that space of knowledge because I wanted to know what it is Nashville on this call is, is how do you ask questions in a productive way? Like that's what gets me about it is that it would be great if you asked me questions, right? Like, why do I believe what I believe? Where am I coming from? How do we navigate this complex world? That's a great of, idea. Of identity. And like, I- That is a very good idea. Like I have them. But it's that question of it, it's the dialogue for me, is it's not answering questions, it is, but it's having that dialogue of, of we, we are very similar. Oh, you're right. And you're we right. come yeah. at the world from two very, ironically similar but different perspectives and so right. how do we reconcile a respective questioning and dialogue and conversation in a way that can move us both forward right sure and like i think that that's that's the interesting yeah. thing for me is who how is my because i don't think i'm wrong i don't think i'm a sinner by virtue of not fully believe no i'm serious right like i've never questioned that i agree we're making progress i agree no but i've never thought that but what i've questioned is where where is my belonging Right. And where is where is my place in this sphere that you exist in? And where is your place in this sphere that I exist in? And how do we how do we reconcile those two in a productive way? So I'm finally understanding a little bit more of what you mean when you say bad Jew. See, we both got somewhere tonight. When you say bad Jew, correct me if I'm wrong, when you say bad Jew, you don't mean actually that you think of yourself as the world's worst Jew ever. Nope. What you mean is it's like a euphemism for um, I have I have um, disqualified myself somehow by virtue of my lifestyle, by virtue of my questions, by virtue of my uh, interesting past, I have disqualified myself from being a full-fledged member together with all the rest of you. Therefore, I'm out, hence bad. Is that, is that close? Yep, absolutely. And again, how do we reconcile those things? Because where I'm landing is based on the past experiences I have. It's not based on any of that, right? right? Like, I don't, I, I honestly, I will tell you that I don't think I am the world's best human. I don't think that I am remotely close to that, but I honestly don't think I'm a bad person, right? Like, I right. don't think if there was a black and white linear version of hell, I don't think I would go to hell, right? right. I don't think all right. of those things. And right. I think- Not better than everybody else, not worse either. Medium person. Right. right. But I think that that's, that's the question that a lot of people struggle with is that where I am is it's like, I am a medium. And again, not talking like purgatory. I'm saying that like all of this stuff, but how no. do I reconcile? And again, part of it is I love you so much. How do I reconcile be feeling very Jewish, feeling very proud of my history, but feeling like I can be a good Jew and marrying a Christian who. A good one. Come on. <laughs> a very good one. But the point holds, right? Oh, human, not Christian. No, just just human. Good human, yeah. right? So, but I and I think that that's something a lot of people my age struggle with. Where if I decide this, how do I not get pushed away from my identity, which is Jewish, right? So yes, exactly. It's not that I'm a bad person. It's not that I'm a sinner. 
Right. No, but I think now for the first time, I actually start to actually understand what you mean. And that's why it's not going to go away by me saying, you are hereby not a bad Jew anymore. Which yeah. might help you. It no, does. No, this is very valuable. This is very helpful. And I'm, I'm very curious to explore this more because this is really, look, this is, this is market research for me, right? This is, this is understanding my, my people, understanding my community. I mean, I don't want to tell you I'm like your target audience for trying to convince, but like I am. What do you mean? Of course you're my target audience. My point. Right? You and everybody like you in this town. My target audience. No, 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 no surprises. That's, that's no, like I know. My target audience are Jews that are by no means religious or orthodox in the, in the typical customary sense, but have a strong sense of Jewish identity to some degree or want to, um, are undecided on the God question and, and would like to figure out where they fit in and how, how it works and how it has integrity if it's not perfect. Again, I think it would help you too, right? Like understanding what you uh, said. Yes, um, but I'm just telling you, that's no, my that's target market. Saying. That's literally this entire city. This is the peak Jewish conversation. I know. What do you mean? I don't know. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> oh, yeah. no, this has I'm been really thinking, nice. No, it goes back. It's the hot drink theory. What's the hot drink theory? Everybody likes to relax and have a hot drink. And it we doesn't matter... Religious. What your, what your religious background Jen is. Like no, but if you sit down and, you know, open yourself up to talking about their, your religion and your beliefs, other people can talk about theirs and you kind of see like, oh, and it gives everyone a richness of what they believe in. You've just given the rabbi an opening to eventually convincing you to convert. Do, do Jews convert people? We do. We let people convert. We could, but it's really not ideal. Not we don't like it. We don't. We're not. We're not fans. We it's, don't like uh, it. This is my memory of it, it. It's a pain. It's a pain for everybody involved, and we don't. We don't actively look for it. We actively discourage it. And I have a that the one thing that I have a perfect record in my life. This is the one area actually. Now I, you made me realize this. I am perfect in one area in my life. You know what that is? No convincing every single non-Jewish person who has ever reached out to me, so we get some through the website, whatever, every single one of them has failed to convert, as far as I know. <laughs> I am batting 1,000. I mean, now I kind of want to... I used to say, no, wait, that's the wrong thing, Derek. She's like, I can burn it down. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Yeah, the thing is, you kind of need my help for that, so sorry. No. Everything's <laughs> fine. We're already married. You can't stop that now. He doesn't need to convert. I'm Jewish. I'm female, matrilineal. It's fine. Yeah, that's it. Well, this was fun. Guys, this has been this has been great. I enjoyed it. I hope I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed it. I hate that. You know. So, do you think that we discussed anything here that should not be aired to the world wide web? I mean, at this point, I think it's funny. I think it's great. I think it's, it's just long. It's an hour and a half. I don't know who will listen to an hour and a half, but we'll try. We'll put it out there. I don't Do know who will listen any, to uh, If we keep going, I feel like we should find a conversation and stick to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we'll, we'll have to be more more disciplined in our in our topics. But again, it's a Jewish podcast. It's a Talmud. 
Talmudic tangents. I'm not gonna lie. I would I would totally listen to something like this as like like the rabbi and the bad Jew discussing feelings for an hour. Like, I don't want to call it that, but yeah. The rabbi we'll, and the we'll, we'll have to brainstorm a good name. We'll we'll brainstorm a good name. All right, we'll we'll brainstorm a good name. And again, like my mama watched this and no one else. Yeah. Maybe, maybe your parents. I don't. Family. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> They'll just be like, "What are you doing?" No, you know what I'm saying? For my parents, it's like, oh, Moshe made another speech, another class, another talk. Wonderful. That's what I do for a living. Like, the consistency among Jewish parents. Oh, he did another class. Good job. <laughs> uh, all right. To be continued. This has to been be great. Continued. Good night, L'chaim. Good night, Anything left? Yeah, I got a little bit left, L'chaim. Oh, I got You're like behind. Ah. Alrighty. See you later.